Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. In another place, Jesus says, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. These are incredible promises that Jesus is making. Quite simply, they're promises of eternal life. Rest for your souls is eternal life. Not being cast out means being received into eternal life. And these promises are held out to all who simply come to him. Come to me, he says, and I will give you rest. Whoever comes to me, he says, I will never cast you out. I think the question you should ask yourself then is what does it mean to come to Jesus Christ? If Jesus offers eternal life to those who come to him, then how do you come to him? What does it mean to come to him? Sometimes simple questions are the most important. And so it is with this one. What does it mean to come to Jesus Christ and be saved? That's what I want us to talk about this morning. And my hope is that by God's grace, you'll leave here with clarity on this. I have three points for you this morning. Number one, the invitation to come to Christ. Number two, how to come to Christ. And then number three, what hinders you from coming to Christ? Now, just a bit of context. We're in a series to start the new year, Blessings Through the Basics. And if you were here last week, we we talked about the new birth. What's the relation between last week's sermon and this week's sermon? It might seem like we're talking about the same thing, but actually we're not. The new birth or regeneration, which is the biblical word for it, is the miraculous work of the Spirit of God that opens our eyes to our need for Jesus, opens our eyes to the offer of life from Jesus, and the new birth results in our responding to Jesus. It results in us coming to Jesus. So this week, what we're going to do is just double-click on what it means to respond to Jesus. What it means to actually come to Jesus. The new birth is what enables, empowers, and drives us to come. We're going to double-click on what it looks like to come. And let me also just say that experientially, the new birth and coming are just intertwined. There's a theological reality that the new birth come, the new birth is before 
repentance and faith coming, but you really just kind of experience them all together. So, the first thing I want you to see is that you are invited to come. Have you ever heard about some phenomenal party that you would frankly love to go to, but you didn't get an invitation? Now, if you're me, you just invite yourself and your wife is embarrassed, but that may not be you. I want you to know that the offer of eternal life, the most phenomenal event ever, is an open invite. You are invited. You know, sometimes it is said that in the Old Testament, salvation was exclusively for the people of Israel. That's not true. God has always been interested in saving sinners of all kinds. That's why in the Old Testament, Israel was to be a light to the nations, that the nations might come. Even in the Old Testament, which is, Israel's, which is Israel-centric, that's true. But even then, God's heart for all is revealed in passages like Isaiah 45 that we read this morning in our call to worship. Just listen. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God. Who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Turn to me all the ends of the earth, and be saved. For I am God and there is no other. What an expansive offer. Turn to me and be saved. Who? All the ends of the earth. Anybody. Anybody. Did you know that God used this verse to convert Charles Spurgeon? the most significant preacher of the last 250 years of church history. It was a snowy Sunday morning, maybe not unlike this Sunday morning. He couldn't make it to normal church, so he turned into this small little Methodist church, 10 to 15 people. Apparently, the pastor of that small little Methodist church couldn't make it either, so a layman stood up. He did not wax eloquent. He was not a good preacher, but he took this text, he showed how it's fulfilled in Jesus and his offer to save any who look to him for life. About 10 minutes into his sermon when Spurgeon in his autobiography said he had come to the end and really had nothing left to say, he pointed to Charles in the audience. It was such a small audience. And he said this, Young man, you look very miserable. And you always will be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. 
But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. And then the old man lifted up his hands and he said, Young man, looking at Spurgeon, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. Spurgeon says that's when he came to Christ. Now, of course, that begs the question that we asked up front, what does it mean to come to Christ? Spurgeon looked to Christ. He came to Christ and lived. Well, how do we look to Christ and live? We'll get there. But first, just remember and bask in it. This is an open invitation. It's an open invitation to all the ends of the earth. Jesus himself in the Great Commission, do you remember what he said? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of particular people groups. No. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. And, of course, remember the text I just quoted a moment ago. Hear this with new ears. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Who's that invitation open to? Anyone within earshot. Come to me, Jesus says. It's an open invitation. It's not exclusive. It's not for any particular group. The Lord wants all to know that all are invited. And so here's the bottom line for you this morning. You are invited. God invites you. Whoever you are, whatever your past, whatever your actions, He invites you to turn to Him, to look to Him, to come to Him and be saved. Jesus' invitation is not only for the cool kids. It's not only for the moral kids. It's not only for the fill-in-the-blank. It's for all, anywhere, who hear and want to come. And if I were you, I'd be asking this. On what basis do I know that Christ is able to save? Okay, He invites me to come to him, but what is it about him that makes him so special? A lot of people say a lot of things. What is it about Jesus Christ that makes what he did and what he says so significant? I want to talk to you for just a moment about he being an all-sufficient Savior. Jesus came for one purpose. To save sinners from their sin. When God made man in the garden, he gave us every good thing. He called us to live underneath his good rule. But we rebelled against him. Adam and Eve, our first parents, dethroned God in their hearts and enthroned themselves in his place. And the penalty for this rebellion is death. Not just physical death, spiritual death. Separation from God outside of His presence. And further, the Bible says that when Adam, when Adam sinned, we sinned too. 
Adam is our covenant head. And so all humanity, born in his image, is guilty. Romans 5 says, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, God would have been just to just leave mankind in this mess. There would have been no injustice for him to wipe his hands clean and leave us to the fallout of our sin. But God is not only just. He is also merciful, and that's why embedded even in Genesis 3 is the promise to send Jesus Christ to be a Savior for sinners. What Jesus came to do is to step into humanity's shoes and to do two things. Number one, in his life, he came to obey God's law perfectly in the place of sinners. And then number two, in his death on the cross, he came to take the penalty of God's law in the place of sinners. And this he did. He lived the life that you should have lived. He died the death you deserve to die. And he rose again, which demonstrates that he is an all-sufficient Savior, which demonstrates that the Father accepted his once-for-all sacrifice. And do you know what he's doing even right now? Interceding on behalf of all who've come to him. He is eternally our great high priest who represents us before God and brings us to God. Hebrews 7 says, The former priests who were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for him, for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up Himself. This is incredible. Jesus died, rose, and ever lives to intercede for his people. If that doesn't cause you heart palpitations, I don't know what will. And this is why you should come to him. Because he's alive. This is why Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. All other saviors are insufficient for this one simple reason. They're dead. Buddha is dead. Gandhi is dead. Mohammed is dead. Plato is dead. Socrates is dead. Immanuel Kant is dead. Nietzsche is dead. Darwin, all dead. Jesus is alive. 
So how do you come to him? How do you respond? Through repentance and faith. Mark 1.15 says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel is the good news of what Jesus has done that we just talked about. And repentance and faith is our response which lays hold of the promise of the gospel. And so what does it mean to believe? What's what's faith? Let's just talk about that first. Faith consists of at least three things. Number one, knowledge. In order to be saved, you must actually know the gospel. You must understand it. There are... There are facts that you actually have to comprehend. This is why Paul says, after he says that beautiful phrase in Romans 10, everyone who believes on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved, he then goes on to say, but how will they call on him in whom they have not believed, and how are they to believe on him of whom they have never heard? And so Paul knows that in order to be saved, you must actually hear the gospel. This is is the impetus for missions. We need to preach the good news of what Jesus has done amongst unreached peoples because we want them to be saved. You must know the gospel. Now, I also have good news for you. This is not complicated. It's, it's not as though you have to have a master's degree to know the gospel. All you need to know is that you're a sinner, that you've rebelled against God's law, and that you deserve his punishment, and that Jesus died and rose to pay the price for your sin. That's the gospel. That's, that's the sum and substance of what you must know in its simplicity, in order to be saved. There's a story of an old, illiterate slave woman who explained the gospel like this. Either he die or I die. He die. I know that. That's the gospel. But faith is not just knowledge. Faith must be knowledge. You must know certain things. You must know the gospel. But faith is not only knowledge. Faith is also assent. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by assent? I mean that not only must you know the gospel, you must believe that it is true. You must assent to it being true. You must believe that Jesus really lived. He really died. He really rose. He really offers forgiveness, and he is really coming back again. Can we use really again? This is not a fairy tale. It is not good fiction. It is as real, friends, as the chair that you're sitting on. You must believe that. But then there's one more element of faith, and it's trust. Have you ever heard of Charles Blondin? He's actually the first man in history to walk on a tightrope across Niagara Falls in 1859. He was a Frenchman, tightrope walker, and acrobatic guy. A story is told that he was 
about to perform a feat and there were uh, reporters there. And he said, do you believe that I can walk across this tightrope? Yes, I believe you can walk across the tightrope. Do you believe that I can walk across this tightrope pushing a wheelbarrow? Yes, I believe you can walk across this tightrope with a wheelbarrow. Do you believe that I could walk across this tightrope with a wheelbarrow with a person in it? Yes, yes, I believe that you could walk across a tightrope with a wheelbarrow with a person in it. And then, maybe you know where I'm going, Blondin said, which one of you will get in? (laughs) And nobody got in that day. But this illustrates that faith is not just knowing about Jesus or believing his message is true. It's placing your trust in him. It's getting in the wheelbarrow. It's putting all of your chips in that poker game of life in one huge bet. And it's all on Jesus. So that's faith. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. You know who he is and you know what he has done. You know that it is true and you place your trust in him personally. I want to contrast this with some misunderstandings of faith that's common to our culture. In our culture, you can believe in something without having any commitment or dependence involved You can believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States, but have no personal commitment or dependence on anyone when you simply believe that fact. So believing in Jesus in that way is not believing in Jesus according to the Bible. Further, in our culture, you can believe in something despite strong evidence to the contrary. Faith is sometimes used to refer to an almost irrational commitment to something in spite of strong evidence to the contrary. I could believe that the Cowboys are going to win the Super Bowl, but friends, it is not going to happen. Maybe it might. But this is not faith according to the Bible. The Bible does not ask us to check out of our intellect and believe in something like we believe in fairies. Faith in the Bible is resting upon the sure promises of a real God who has acted in history. And it's believing the things that we have not seen, but believing that they are in fact true and resting all of our confidence in them. Let's talk about repentance. What's repentance? Well, first of all, you need to know that repentance is necessary. Jesus did say, repent and believe in the gospel. And this isn't just a one-off text. Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Luke 24, 46 and 47. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Acts three nineteen. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Acts 17, 30 and 31. So, 
what you should conclude from just those verses alone is that repentance is necessary. But follow me. You also need to know that repentance and faith are two sides of one coin. And this helps us make sense of something. If you've read your Bible, you know that there are many verses that speak of faith being what saves. And repentance is nowhere in the picture. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Ephesians 2.8 Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Acts 16.31 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. John 3.36 But then if you've also read your Bible, you know that there are times when the biblical authors speak of repentance as what saves and they don't even mention faith. Like, that's what some of the verses we just read actually say. So, what gives? What gives is that repentance and faith are inseparable. Repentance and faith are two sides of one coin. When you turn to Christ in faith, you are turning from something. What are you turning from? You're turning from your sin. And turning is repentance. So what is repentance? Well, let me just, let me say it a few different ways. What is repentance? Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of life. It's a change of mind about who God is, about who you are, about right and wrong, about what life is about, about what eternity is going to look like. Repentance is a change of mind about these things. You, you believed one thing. And now you're believing differently. And this results in a change of life. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of life. Jesus said to the Pharisees, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, Matthew 3, 8. He knows that repentance leads to change, different actions, different decisions, different way of life. So, Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of life. I'd also say it like this. Here's another way. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow over sin, a renouncing of it, and a, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Jesus Christ. Repentance feels sorrow over sin. Listen, your sin cost Christ his life. Your sin put Christ on the cross. Your sin, whether it be a little white lie or adultery, is terrible. Which is why you feel sorrow over it. When you come to see that your sin put Christ on the cross, it becomes personal, and that personalness of it leads you to renounce it. You can't repent. I'm sorry. You can't continue to live the way you lived before. You, you, can't, you can't imagine it. To even think of remaining as you are becomes unthinkable to you. And so what you do is you, you turn from your sin. You, you, you put it down. You, you walk away. 
By the way, it, it might just be helpful if we continue to make, you know, clear what we're talking about and not just use Christian ease. We might be helped to just define sin. What's sin? Sin is any thought, word, or deed that is not in keeping with God's word. That's sin. So repentance feels sorrow over sin. Repentance renounces sin. And then repentance is a sincere commitment to forsake it and to walk in obedience to Jesus Christ. Now, just a couple of clarifications about repentance and faith. First of all, remember that they go together. Scripture puts repentance and faith together as different aspects of the one act of coming to Christ for salvation. Follow me. It's not that you turn first from your sin and next trust in Christ. Or it's not that you first trust in Christ and then turn from your sin. Both occur at the same time. When you turn to Christ for salvation from your sin, you are simultaneously turning away from the sins that you are asking Christ to save you from. So, neither repentance nor faith come first. They come together. Does that make sense? Okay, then second. Repentance and faith continue throughout all of life. Coming to Christ is one big step. There is, in fact, a definitive moment. It is not necessary for you to know exactly when that moment was. But there was a moment when you repented and believed. And when you did, you were converted. You came to Christ savingly and you were saved. Christ's sacrifice was applied to you. Your sins were forgiven and you were counted as righteous in his sight and given the gift of eternal life in a moment, in a nanosecond. It was all done. But it's important to realize that faith and repentance are not confined to the beginning of the Christian life. They are attitudes of the heart that continue throughout our lives as Christians. Until we die, friends, we will continue to turn from our sin and trust in Jesus Christ. It's as daily as eating and drinking. What Nikki did this morning in share time is nothing more than a display of that continual repentance and trust in Christ. Now, let me just pause. And I want to press down this truth of repentance. What might some of you in this room need to repent of? What does repentance actually mean for you personally? And this is so important because remember, coming to Christ includes repentance. No repentance, no salvation. Maybe you need to repent of not liking God. It may be that as you read God's word or hear him proclaimed, 
you don't like the things that you hear. You don't like the things that you read. You don't like the fact that God says He will judge those who don't come to Him in repentant faith. Well, for you then, what you need to do is repent of not liking who He actually is. You see, you actually don't have the freedom to create God according to your own designs, according to how you think He should be. How many times do you hear people say, Oprah has said it, my God is not like that. With all due respect to Oprah and you, it doesn't matter what she thinks about God or what you think about God. What matters is who God is and who He's revealed Himself to be. And so you may need to repent of not liking who God declares Himself to be and accept Him for who He actually is, not who you imagine Him to be. That may be one thing some of you may need to repent of. need to repent of your badness. Maybe you've done really bad things and are continuing to do really bad things. And you know what those things are. If you want to come to Christ, you must repent of those things. On the flip side, maybe you need to repent of your goodness. I find oftentimes the hardest people to convince that the need to repent are the good people. The people who honestly live pretty upright, square lives, try to love their spouse, try to work hard, try to put food on the table for their family, and try to be kind to others. Friends, if you think that is sufficient for you to enter God's presence who is perfectly holy and will not countenance any sin, you are terribly confused And let me just put a biblical word to it. You're actually quite prideful. If you think highly of yourself in that case, that's pride. So you need to repent of your pride in thinking that you're okay, in thinking that you're one of the good guys. When you draw a circle and you think of the good people or the bad people, you put yourself in the good people circle. You need to take yourself out of that circle and put yourself in the bad people part of the Venn diagram, however that works. Okay? So maybe you need to repent of your badness and you know you're bad, but maybe you need to repent of your goodness because you're deceived and you think you're actually good. And some of you are quite good, but not when compared to a holy, perfect, righteous God. You're so far from good, it's unbelievable. That may be what you need to see. And if you don't see it yet, then you need to understand who He actually is. So maybe you need to repent of your goodness. Maybe you need to repent of your ownership claims. Here's what I mean. Do you think that you are in charge of your life? Do you think that you have the freedom to determine the direction of your life? Do you think that you have the freedom to do with your life what you think you should do with your life? You don't have any of those freedoms. You are a created being made by God who owns you and owns the rights over you. And you must recognize that every breath that you have is a gift that is given to you by Him. You do not own anything about yourself. God made you. He owns you. You owe everything to Him. Autonomy is a lie. 
maybe you need to repent of your self-definition. We live in an age of therapeutic self-creation where we believe that whatever it is that we think ourselves to be, we are in fact that. That's not true. What God says you are, who God says you are, is what is true. And you do not have the freedom to redefine humanity or yourself or your relationships or your identity. You must submit to His definition of who you are. No one comes to Christ unless they repent of whatever particular sin they happen to hold dear. To the man who loved his money, Jesus told him to sell what he had and give it to the poor. To the woman who loved other men, not her husband, Jesus told her to go and sin no more. You cannot come to Christ unless you repent. But you know what? That is actually good news. Because it means that Jesus receives sinners. Jesus receives the sexually immoral. Jesus receives the proud. Jesus receives the prodigals who squandered everything. Jesus receives angry men, selfish children, jealous and envious women. Jesus does not require uprightness. Jesus does not require that you clean yourself up. Jesus takes you, warts and all, and in fact, that is the only way he will take you. He only takes those who know that they need him and thus come to him in repentant faith. And so what I want for you this morning, if you're hearing my voice and you're not a Christian, what do I want for you? I want you to know that Jesus is a willing and sufficient Savior. That He holds out the promise of life to you this very morning. And that it is yours, in fact, if you will repent and believe. Coming to Christ is actually not complicated. It's very simple. It's turning from your sin and placing your trust in Jesus to save you. Some of you here this morning haven't come to Christ because you actually really haven't understood until now what it means to come to Christ. Well, well, do you understand now? Well, then you can come. Come. You can come to Him at any age. Children, you can come to Him. Teenagers, wherever you're hiding, you can come to Him. Young adults, you can come to Him. Older adults, you can come to Him. All of you, All of you, you can come to Him. Come to Him today. Some of you may be hindered by something, though. You may know these things to be true, but some of you may be hindered by something from coming to Him in repentance and faith. There are things that can hinder you from coming to Christ. Let's talk about some of them. Number one, maybe you're neglecting the Christ of the Bible. 
Maybe you know of Christ, but it's not the Christ of the Bible. Jesus, friends, is not your buddy. When I listen to country music, I love country music, but it makes me think when I hear the lyrics that Jesus is my beer-drinking, gun-toting, MAGA-hat-wearing buddy. That's just not true. Jesus is not your buddy. Further, Jesus is not your therapist. Jesus has not come to make you okay with you. Jesus has actually come to tell you that you, I have bad news for you, if self-esteem is your biggest concern, he's come to tell you, you're terrible. And that's why I died. And that's why I rose. It's to save sinners like you. He didn't come to make you feel better about yourself. He's not your therapist. Jesus also isn't your key to a successful life. Maybe you think that what Jesus will really do for you is, is kind of make it so that the things that have all been going wrong, those things will all go right. And he's come to give us a successful life. I have bad news for you. Sometimes life gets harder when you become a Christian. Not easier. Because he's more interested in your holiness than your happiness. But at the same time, I would say that your holiness is your happiness. So there's some truth there. But he didn't come to give you a successful life. Jesus came to save you from your sins. So maybe you're neglecting the Christ of the Bible. Maybe what's hindering you is that you don't know what a real Christian is. So maybe you're neglecting the Christ of the Bible. Maybe you don't know what a real Christian is. Some of you think that being a Christian means mental assent to the facts of the gospel. Or that you could come to Jesus as your Savior, but not as your Lord per per se. That's simply not true. Some of you think that since you were baptized as an infant, you're a Christian. Some of you think that saving grace is conferred through sacraments. Some of you think that being conservative makes you a Christian. Some of you think that having spiritual or emotional experiences or a vision or a dream or an impression that is strong makes you a Christian. Some of you think that because you believe the Bible and are generally a good person, you're a Christian. Only those who come to Christ through repentance and faith are Christians. None of these other things make you a Christian. And so maybe some of you today haven't come to Christ because you haven't really thought you needed to. You already thought you were one. You've already done the things and checked the boxes. But you're not. And if you see that now, I have wonderful news for you. You can come. You can come. Maybe what keeps you from coming to Christ is despair due to great sin. Maybe you're neglecting the Christ of the Bible. Maybe you don't know what a real Christian is. Maybe what's keeping you from Christ is despair due to a great sin. Maybe you've committed an abortion. Maybe you've been unfaithful to your spouse. Maybe you've stolen a significant amount of goods or services. Maybe you've lied under oath or lied in significant ways. 
Maybe you've changed your gender, even surgically. Some of you have done certain things that you think, boy, howdy, there is no going back from this, is there? There is. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost, Paul says. Do you know what Paul was before he became a Christian? He was a persecutor of Christians who stood at the feet when Stephen was stoned to death because of his faith and testimony in Jesus Christ. Paul stood right there and saw his blood and said, Amen and amen, he deserved to die. Paul says, I am the foremost of sinners. That wasn't a rhetorical flourish or false humility. Paul knew he had committed great sins. And he knew he'd been forgiven of those sins. And why? But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. There's no sin you've committed that can't be forgiven. Maybe what's holding some of you back is spiritual complacency. Maybe you think I can do this later. I find this amongst our young people all the time. Maybe you don't think you need to do it. Maybe you're just distracted by the world and it's like planning for retirement. That will happen one day. Or maybe, maybe you're confused about election. Some people don't come to Christ because they're confused about election. They hear about God saving His elect. They don't know if they're in that number, so they're not sure if they can come. Friend, rightly understood, election is not a barrier to come to Christ. It is an encouragement to come to Christ. God never tells us to ascertain if we are elect and then come to Christ. He tells us to come to Christ and then to know that we are elect. One theologian writes, quote, Whatever God's purposes be which are secret, I am sure that His promises are plain. Do not stand still disputing about your election, but set yourself to repenting and believing, end quote. That's a good word. Don't let your, don't let your election decide your coming, friend. Let your coming decide your election. Friends, there is nothing more important than what you will do in response to Jesus Christ. Will you repent and believe in Him? This is what it means to come to Him. Will you come? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the offer of the gospel. Life, life, eternal life to all who come in repentance and faith. Father, I pray that even this morning there would be those who move from death to life through responding to this word, this gospel preached in turning from their sin and trusting in you and thus being saved. 
We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.